Father in heaven, you're a good and wonderful God. Just like the psalmist says, you're willing to take a shield and shield us from those who persecute us. Help us to trust fully in you and your provision for us as we look at this topic today, the armor of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are gathered pretty much in a rural setting. There are towns, outlying towns are some distance away, and you are gathered there with your three best friends. And as you look around, you begin to see kind of in the distance a kind of a misty fountain of looks like dust coming up and mist mixed together with it from a distance, you begin to hear a rumble sound. And as the sound gets closer and closer, you look at each other and look at each other's weapons and say, all right, let's pray and do this. I don't know about you, but if I had an army coming at me with not just horsemen, but foot soldiers, weaponry, and I look behind me and all I had was my three best friends and the rest of the army had already fled away. I don't know about you, but I might be tempted to, to go away with them. Wouldn't you? Because you look behind you and you're leading nobody into battle except for your three closest warriors. Well, that's exactly what happened. We find the Bible record records it in 2 Samuel 23. And then David's number two. David had a number one who could kill 800 men in one battle himself. Okay, so that was his number one. Now we get to his number two, mighty man. And it says here, and after him, that's the, after the number one guy who could kill 800 people in one battle, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, and one, on one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines. So there's David with three mighty men, and they defy the Philistines. And why do they have to stand there in such defiance? Keep reading. They were gathered together to battle. So the Philistines were gathering together for battle. The Israelites were gathered together for battle. And the men of Israel had gone away, or as some versions say, they had fled. So imagine there you are with your three commanders, and all of their troops have fled them, each one of those commanders. And you're standing there with your leadership team, and you're facing an oncoming army that is innumerable. What would you do? It says... He arose, which means then to arise either means you are going up a hill or you knelt down before you faced that battle. I think I would venture to say, since the Philistines typically engaged in battle in the open plain or somewhere near there, that we're not talking about them going up a hill. We're talking about Eliezer and the rest of them knelt as they faced the oncoming army. And they arose. And what did they do? They struck the Philistines, and Eliezer struck them so much that his hand was weary to the point where his hand was stuck to the sword after the battle. Now, if you've ever been in a white-knuckle situation, you know what this is like. There you are, and you are going down the road, and you are in some ice or something like that, and you're holding on to that steering wheel. You know what that feeling is. Imagine seeing this army coming towards you, and you know that's the answer right there, and you are just holding on to that thing for dear life. You're dodging, you're stabbing, you're doing all of this with two, three other men, maybe back to back. Maybe David at first led them into it, and then eventually they're in the, in the thick of it, and they have to fight back to back in a formation to defeat all of these Philistines. Use your imagination a little bit. Go beyond our modern warfare and go back in time and imagine the trust that would have to take place in your leader 
and especially your leader, the Lord himself. It says his hand held on to the sword. They couldn't get it off. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him, Eliezer, only to spoil. And so the rest of the troops came back when it was time to pick up all of the goods. Wouldn't that be quite a day? Imagine if you were one of the four people that survived that battle, but not only survived it, but defeated the enemy. You'd be tempted to say, yeah, that was pretty good, wasn't it? But they were not tempted. They knew that they knelt and they rose with the Lord's victory only, causing them victory. And so the victory was because of the Lord. And I would have a sense of thankfulness and a sense of probably relief and say, oh, wow, Lord, if you can cause a victory like that, surely, surely you can bring about more spiritual victories in my life as well. And so this is a scenario we find. And I would like to say that it's just, you could say, well, that's just an ancient battle. But as you go in throughout the Bible, you find they go from the ancient battles to really the spiritual battles of our lives. And imagine there's somebody who's in chains, and yet he believes that he is clothed in the armor of God, and he is really not captive. He is really being victorious over the situation that he faces. Paul looks, you can imagine them being locked up there. You have a soldier in front of you with the sword, with the helmet, with the breastplate, with all the armor clad. And it dawns on you that really he has man-made armor, but I have the armor of God. And that's where Paul begins to write. He believes that God was really fighting for him even when he was in chains and that he was following the true Davidic king. Not David in the Old Testament with his three mighty men, but Jesus himself. And we go to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul, as he's writing this letter, he gets towards the end, and there's a lot more we could explore. And next year, we'll get into the armor of God piece by piece. But this year, let's get the main theme. Finally, my brethren, be strong in who? The Lord. Not in yourself, not in your own schemes, not in your own methods, even though they may be good. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. It's not something that you can acquire or you can buy or you can say, well, you know, God has this armor on sale somewhere. I'm going to go ahead and buy it and, and, and spend all my money on it, all my savings on it. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with you have to be the person that God wants you to be to have that strength. And that only comes through being in the Lord. That's why Jesus said that he was in the Father and the Father was in him and he wished that we would be in them as well. In the Lord is our strength. We must be his people that he wants us to be. And it says if we do that, we'll be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And the idea is, I'm thinking, Paul, why are you repeating all of these words for strength? He's emphasizing something. We're strong in the Lord, and as a result of that, we're able to rule or have dominion to the point where we put down with force the mighty forces against us. And how do we do that? Well, the first clue is in the Lord, but he says, put on the whole armor of God. This will be repeated later on and will be linked to the Holy Spirit. But what we find here is we put on the whole armor of God so we can stand against the wiles of the devil. Head to toe covering provided by who? The king. Philippians 4.13 says this idea that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's the provider. 
Imagine King David, he's got his three mighty men there, and as they're getting ready to go into battle, they don't have to look at their armor. They know they've been provided for. They know that they have been provided. And they, and they notice in the text, back where we started with, they each have a sword. Now, do you remember the beginning of Israelite history, how many swords they had in the camp of Israel when Saul was ruler and Jonathan, when they first began? Saul and Jonathan. And so you have David has provided for his men. Not only does David have a sword, but Eliezer has a sword. These guys are well equipped. And this is what this is saying. They don't only have weapons, but they have armor on, which means somebody has provided provision for them to be successful. Christ, according to Paul, has provided provision for us to be successful in the spiritual battles we face. So I can stand firm because I'm following Jesus Christ. It's like the Lord saying, Murray... Look at and be aware of the enemy advancing. Yeah, there's enemies. There's hordes of evil forces advancing against you spiritually and against your church that you love and you pastor, but don't focus on them. Allow me to direct your path. Yes, they are coming, but be like Eleazar and them. Take the knee and rise up and stand firm until the end. I've been over that ground before you. I'm giving you peace, love, joy, and strength as you pray to me. Trust me, I've made every every, every provision for you. You're going to win the war. Not the battles. Just the battles. The war. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just win a few battles. I want God to give me enough provision and me to accept that and invite that into my life that I win the war and I stand there at the end and yes, I may be white-knuckling with that sword, but I let go of the sword. And like Paul, I can say I fought the good fight. It's over. And so Paul is encouraging his Christian friends in Christ to put on the whole armor of God, to put on what God has provided for you. And we could get into the whole thing about righteousness by faith and all that. We could get into all of that. But let's just stick clearly with the main idea. Use the provisions that God has available for each one of us. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a hand-to-hand, chokehold battle that we're in. I've been in my share of fights as a younger person, and I, as I think about some of them, it's the grappling close ones where you don't know if the person's got a knife or not that you're just very nervous about. And I remember uh, this text here as, it, as I read it, thinking to myself, wrestling. I was never that good of a wrestler. I was a fighter. But Paul is saying, this is deep down a fight to the death. Satan means not just to harm you. Satan means to use you, abuse you, and kill you eventually. And why do I know that? Paul says we wrestle and back then, if you could go to an ancient spectator sport and look at it, and you have these two guys wrestling hand-to-hand, how would they win the battle? Well, eventually, they would put the guy down not by just the shoulders and pin him, like way people do it now, but by the neck and hold them for a certain amount of time. And sometimes, sometimes, crush their neck just to make a point. Can you imagine a battle like that? Paul's saying, that's the battle that Satan has, and he seriously wants to do that to you. How do you feel about that? I don't feel comfortable enough and powerful enough to face that type of person, that type of foe. But Paul is saying you can, through the provision of Christ, be victorious. And he will be the one that is down by the neck, not because of you, but because of Christ. 
And so as I look at the problems I face in life, I realize behind it is really Satan trying to get a chokehold on me. And it's not the problem or the person, it's the powers behind that problem or person that I really need to go after. And the only way to engage that is through prayer and through Christ. Imagine being a commander of an army and you look in horror as those four men stand back to back hacking down your best soldiers. Now this happened with that movie 300 or that th- those 300 uh, warriors that stood against uh, the Syri- Medo-Persian army. But as you look at the stories in the Bible, they're even more astounding than that. Four individuals, sometimes one individual against 800, indiv- 800 people. And imagine being the one who's commanding the losing side of that battle when you see these four individuals back to back, hacking down your best warriors. You keep sending wave after wave against them. You eventually tell your soldiers to back off and you shoot the fiery darts at these people and they just keep blocking them. And somehow they put them out. And then they rush upon your archers and hack them down. Can you imagine being the commander of a battle like that and watch in horror as they cut down your whole army and now they're advancing towards you? That's what Jesus says through Paul happens with Satan, even with one of us mighty men or women of God. He watches in horror as his whole force is depleted upon you, not because of you or me, but because of Christ. And in that way, Christ puts a stranglehold upon him in our lives. Proverbs 24, 16 says, A righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up again. Imagine the foe who watches in horror as as the person keeps getting up, keeps getting up. Maybe they're hit by a huge glancing blow and they get knocked down, but they turn around and they get up and they just keep coming at you. That's really the mission of the church, to keep moving forward even though huge obstacles are faced against us. We saw this back in Ephesians 3, where it says the mission of the church is that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, which is a passive. It's like the forces of darkness look on passively like they can't do anything about it. They're watching as the church is united. They're watching as the prayers of the saints open up doors for heaven's forces to be poured out, lives to be changed, and their forces to be depleted. They're watching in horror as rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, as we stand firm with Jesus and have victory with him. That's the mission of the church, is to be victorious. And I want that to happen in my life. I want his peace as I follow him, and as I follow him into battle, I want to stand firm with him, and I want him to have my back. And sometimes I'm just going to step out of the way and say, all right, this is yours, Lord. I I, I just can't do any more. Ephesians 6 goes on and emphasizes it again. Put, therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. That's the second time it's mentioned. It must be important that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, there is a part for us to play. Let's not get, we're not passive in this. The passive part is invitation. You're inviting God's presence, but at that presence and that bidding is enabling. He is telling you to move forward. It's kind of like when people say, well, I'm going to pray for people. And I say, well, that's fine, but eventually prayer without action. You need some action attached to that. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to pray for people that they'll come to our evangelistic meetings in September. That's fine. But at some point, God's going to put it upon your heart to invite them to those meetings as well. And so be an answer to the own prayer. Done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, 
having on the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. He doesn't play fair. In some ancient warfare methods, what would happen would be the archers would, if you were killed by an archer in some people's minds, that was a mark of shame. And so think about, for instance, the Medo-Persian army when they had this group of 300 they were facing against. Well, they eventually, because that unit was so strong, they called out the archers and said, just start, just start shooting them. They didn't like it. That was not really their method. They were hoping that their eternal, their force in the front, that they kept 10,000 people at all times, would, would totally deplete these 300 individuals. But it wasn't working. So they pulled out the archers. The archers just began shooting at them. And that's how they depleted those individuals who stood against the Medo-Persians. So as I'm thinking about that, Jesus is saying, he won't even be able to shoot the arrows at you. As shameful as he will be in battle, he won't even be able to hurt you with that. And so I'm going to stand for Jesus. We know battles are to be fought every day. A great warfare is going on. Every, every soul, that's my name, that's your name, between the prince of darkness and the prince of life. There is a great battle to be fought. But you are not to do the main fighting here in the battle. It's not, you're not doing the main fighting. You have a part, yes, but who's doing it? As God's agent, you are to yield yourself to him. That he may plan and direct and fight the battle for you. That is the kind of person I want to have lead my life. Who has never lost a battle. And he's willing to do it. Murray, you never walk alone. You never fight a battle alone. I'm right there. And if you'd step out of the way, I'd take this on for you. Who can stand against the lion of the tribe of Judah and win? They couldn't stand against David in the Old Testament, let alone this Jesus we're talking about. No one will be able to stand against him at the end. And he's offering not to wait until then to fight, but to fight for us right now. Prince of life is at the head of his work. He is to be with you in your daily battle with self. So whatever that temptation may be that keeps coming around, that is, he's willing to give you victory over that. That you may be true to principle. That passion when warring for the mastery may be subdued by the grace of Christ. So there he is willing to lead you into a battle with yourself. And the main ingredient that he gives you, helps give you victory is focusing on his provision, the grace of Christ. That you may come off more than conquer through him that loved us. She goes on, Jesus has been over the ground. He knows the power of every temptation. He knows just how to meet every emergency, how to guide you through every path of danger. Through it, not just to it, but through it. He'll guide you right through that battle to the end. He was given his precious life because he loved you, wanted you to be happy. will be a captain who will always be mindful of your interests. And so I can trust someone like that. And I can stay focused. And I'm happy just to look at his back as he leads. But how does the armor symbolize focusing on Christ and his provision? Let's move on. Verse 13, take on the whole armor. It mentions the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. There's a whole lot more characteristics. Helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. We were talking about that in our theme this morning. Praying always with all prayer. Involves prayer. Involves the gospel down in verse 19. And it involves us becoming 
the ambassadors for Christ as well. And as I went through that list, it was interesting, and our young people have this answer now to write down. It was interesting, I found quite a bit of those components, not only just in Psalm 35 where he takes the shield and shields you, but in Isaiah 59 where he comes and says, I've got good people. They're being persecuted, torn down. No one seems to be interceding and working on their behalf. I'm going myself to this battle. And Isaiah 59, beautiful text. It lists off all of these characteristics. Isaiah 59, verse 15. Truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So you're departing from evil. You're trying to do the right thing, and all of a sudden they they descend on you like someone descending upon prey. So imagine that. Someone who's innocent in heart, now being persecuted and sought after by evil, and God watches that. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. That's not right. That's not good behavior. He saw that there was no man, wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Who's the he? This is the Lord. A helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according he will repay. Fury for to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. If there's no parallel between that and Ephesians, then I'm obviously not reading it correctly pretty clear that there are parallels. It's pretty clear that God sees our spiritual defeat. He sees the injustice. He sees the sorrow. It displeases him. And he says, I can't, I'm not sending anybody else but myself to fight this battle. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm locked up, but God is really fighting for me. Our armor is provided to us by Jesus himself. It's purchased at a great price. We, in essence, we, we become in Christ when we trust him, and he then fights the battle for us. And where was that price paid? Well, if you look through this text, you'll find all those elements there. It says in verse 20, the Redeemer shall come to Zion. When did he come to his people? When did he come and offer a great price and have a victory above victories? Remember the old prophecy in the Old Testament? He would crush the head of the serpent and himself be wounded. When did that take place? When was Christ wounded? Right there at the cross. And at the cross, then, we know that a defeat was taken, had taken place, even though Satan thought he had Jesus. Jesus actually had a reversal, great cosmic reversal. And because he did not stay dead, he arose, innocent Savior, wonderful King, and he provides provision now from heaven. And so we find that was really the decisive vow. That's where he went, and you find there's no fault with him. He has perfect righteousness. Let us fulfill all righteousness. You find throughout his life, the plan of salvation is upon his mind. You find throughout his life, he goes about sharing the truth. Wherever he goes, the gospel of peace was upon his lips. 
And he came to confirm a covenant with his people. And so Paul, when he uses the armor of God and he sees the soldier standing there, he's really reminded of the Old Testament. He's really reminded that Jesus has fought the fight for him and Jesus will provide for him. And so the Lord's covenant is mentioned here and the spirit and the words of God. And let's compare these two now. If you look at the armor of God in Isaiah, you've got the righteousness as a breastplate. Armor of God in Ephesians, breastplate of righteousness. You go to Isaiah, helmet of salvation, helmet of salvation in Ephesians. Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of the Lord. Look at these comparisons. Word of truth that will last forever. Truth in the form of a girdle and a sword. And then you go on down. It's implied that those who are God's people that he fights for are having faith in him, are trusting in him because they turn from sin. Well, you've got the shield of faith in the New Testament implying that we're continuing to trust Jesus even though the fiery darts are coming at us. And then in Isaiah, you've got an ambassador, a messenger of truth that's none other than the Lord himself delivering a message. And Paul says, I'm an ambassador and I have this gospel to share with everybody. I believe that Jesus is really a fulfillment of both of these texts. That he is the one we look to for that provision. And so when we focus our minds on his provision, how he has paid the price, he has crushed the head of the serpent, yet he has that beautiful life offer us in our lives as I look and focus on Him every day. Become more like Him. He begins to win the battles in my life. And there are some that sometimes I allow the victory to have some enchanted ground into my heart, but I want the Lord to close that off and to take that ground and give it back to Jesus. And so I'm going to keep trusting in Him and become more like Him. And Paul says, You're also then going to go forth and make known the mystery of the gospel. You're going to be maybe in prison and in bonds like him. But he says, I'm going to speak, pray that I speak boldly as I ought to speak. Put on the whole armor. Look to Jesus for your victory and witness with Jesus there. You'll be happy and you'll be with someone who's mindful of your interest every step of the journey. He will lead you everywhere. Isn't that what he said in Matthew 28? Jesus came and spoke to them all. Power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go make disciples of all nations. Teach them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, or always, even to the end of the age or world. And it goes on in Matthew 24, before that, he said, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And so we become warriors for Christ, but we take a message of Christ to the world as well. And we'll be able to endure, we'll be able to teach through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that really will wrap up Earth's history. Not the tsunamis, not the earthquakes, not everything else, but the preaching and sharing of the message of Jesus. So we have to focus on that every day. We have to share him with those around us. So imagine being Paul. There you are locked up. You see this guy in the armor. You think, well, I'm actually, I look locked up, but I'm actually clothed in armor. You can't really touch me unless you go through the armor that God, the provision that God has provided. And so there he is seeing that. And later on, he comes along and says, all right, I fought the good fight. It's like he's saying, I could let go of the sword now. And now is laid up for me this beautiful, beautiful future. 
And so Paul, locked up, writes these words to not just them, but to us, to encourage us. Writes those words and says, put on the whole armor of God. Focus on his provision. Focus on his victory. You'll have that victory. And eventually, we'll all let go of the sword. We'll be at peace forevermore. And so I want to focus on his provision. I want to focus on him to the point where it begins to permeate my life more and more. It's already started some time ago. But I want that victory to keep flowing into me so that Satan is hacked down and he throws more and more at me. And the Lord's like, oh, I prepared you for that. I prepared you for that. And I'm like, I can't. And so we just keep moving forward until we let go of the sword. That would be a wonderful day. So I want to be clothed in the armor of God, not man's armor like Paul saw there in the jail. And I want Jesus to lead me all the way. So all I am doing this morning is encouraging each one of us to focus on Christ. He's provided the provision and he's called upon me to sound the battle cry and say, follow him. It may look, you may look around and only see three other guys with you, just like in our opening story. But I can tell you right now, that's the place to be if that's where God has called you to be. And so our closing song is to that effect. We know that God has provided provision. We know that he has this beautiful protection and armor for us. But we must focus on him and keep marching forward as he sounds the battle cry. Lord, may our focus ever be on you, your provision, your power, and your soon return. You are a captain of the mighty throng. Even if we look outnumbered, we have all of heaven on our side. Help us to put on the armor each day, ready for a battle, ready to fo stay focused on Christ until the end when we let go of our swords and we take a hold of our crowns and we throw them at your feet and say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. In his name I pray. Amen.